Do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We are at chapter 14. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 16. Mark 14, 12 through 16. Now, before we hear God's Word read, let us go to Him once again in prayer, asking for His help in understanding and applying this text. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. By the great power of the Holy Spirit, cause our ears to hear the voice of our Good Shepherd, our Passover Lamb, we pray. Amen. Mark 14, 12 through 16. Hear now the word of God. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover Lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Here we are in the month of June, first week of June, perhaps the first week or second week for many students of summer, first week or two of summer. A fine season it is for students to relax, to enjoy some fun in the sun, go on some trips, and not do some homework. Some teachers will take advantage of this time off, and they should. Much deserved rest, much needed rest. Others will take just a brief break and will take advantage of the summer months to prepare. They'll use the two months to reflect on the previous year and to make necessary adjustments. Some of the more crazy teachers who just can't seem to take a break, guilty as charged, will plan out all the lessons for the upcoming year. Yes, all of them. They'll write down each day's lesson. They'll write down every reading assignment students will, will get to do. They'll write down every, cla- every classroom discussion that they will have, every quiz or test, every dialogue, every project, every required paper, even every possible extra credit assignment, every field trip, and, of course, every homework assignment. And they'll even plan out flex days to make sure that they're still, on, they're still on track despite all of the interruptions to the classroom discussion. Now, the most significant drawback to this approach is the loss of much summertime gladness. But a robust reward to those who follow this approach is the alleviation of some or much stress. While most of the teachers will frantically run around like headless chickens, 
These teachers do not need to wait in line for the copy machine. They already went there a week before and did all their copies for maybe the whole year. Again, these are some of the crazy ones. They don't have to ask the headmaster two pages worth of questions on day one because they've already made preparations. They are, they're good to go. They're ready. They get to relax now a little bit and enjoy what is before them. With the clear perspective on the year's trajectory, they are excited to greet those incoming students and to teach them all that they have planned in those last two months. As Jesus, the good teacher, told his disciples, the sun is always working. The sun is always preparing, even preparing a home for his disciples. And he has only a handful of hours left to prepare his disciples and himself for that hour of crucifixion that is fast approaching. From these verses, we see that the teacher plans prepares, and provides everything his disciples need for life. Turn with me again to verse 12 and read with me. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And there's much debate about the exact timing of these events, especially when you compare the language here to the language in, in Matthew and Luke and especially in John's gospel. There's much confusion also because of just the, the way that Jewish days were counted differently from Roman day or even how we would count a day. But the sermon is no place to engage that debate. So suffice it to say that it is the Jewish month Nisan, which we read in Exodus 12, day 14, which is, in our modern equivalent, April 2nd, A.D. 33, Thursday. What a delight that we can have such historical precision. Now, we're not yet in the evening. That is verse 17 to be explored next week as we look at the Lord's Supper, the covenantal meal. But we have some hours of daylight remaining. As you saw last week, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread can be used broadly to include the Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples spent Wednesday in Bethany, and so they need now to re-enter Jerusalem. They need to come back to Jerusalem to have that final feast, that final Passover meal. Now, next week, we will see them eating that meal, but for now, we're slowing down the narrative or rather, we are reading Mark's slowed-down account. Remember, Mark, at this point in this chapter, he's really dialing it down. We are going extra slow because he wants us to see how important each of these steps is in the final week, the final hours of Jesus' life here on earth, on this side of the cross. As we said last Sunday, the meals of the Passover and unleavened bread highlight the redemptive rescue of God's people who were enslaved to Egypt. And that redemptive rescue was done with, the, with all of the urgency and haste that their legs could muster. They were to eat ready to go, and so they did. As soon as the destroyer struck, they were told then to get out, and they had all of their preparations. And Jesus wants to eat this meal with his disciples, but you'll remember from last week, there's a pretty significant problem. The religious leaders have plotted to murder Jesus 
And Judas, we saw from last week, has been seeking the time to betray Jesus. You might remember in Jesus' uh, um, battle with the devil, after Jesus defeated the devil, says that the devil left him and sought another opportunity. Now we have Judas in league with the devil, a child of the devil, seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus. But Jesus wants to have this meal with his disciples. Truly, Jesus knows that malice is afoot, as the wicked lie in wait to shed innocent blood. And in order to ensure that the meal can be eaten, he sends two of his disciples on a mission to prepare it. We're not told in Mark's gospel who these two disciples are, but if we turn to Luke, we know that these two disciples are Peter and John, which makes sense. They are two of the top three of the twelve disciples. Jesus has sent them on other mini-missions. And as one commentator noted, the directions that Jesus gives these two disciples are both direct on the one hand, but also indirect or indefinite on the other. So the directions are direct and definite enough to help Peter and John locate the place where they are to eat this meal, as we'll see in just a minute. On the other hand, Jesus does not give them the names of the men that they are to follow. He simply says, look for a man who is carrying a water jug, and then there will be a house. The master of the house will have that large upper room ready for us. Why all the cloak without the dagger? Remember, it's because the one who is all cloak and dagger is seeking the time to use that dagger. And he, Judas, is in their midst. So Jesus needs to be circumspect, be cautious with what he says, with the specific directions that he gives Peter and John in order to ensure that they can eat this meal. And so Jesus has secured a safe house so they can have this one final meal together. Mark tells us that Jesus has planned a man for these two to follow, and then there is a master of the house. So it's, it would do us well to consider these two figures briefly. Now, if we forget the scene, you might wonder how Jesus' words could have been helpful. Jesus says, go into the city, find a man carrying a jar of water. He'll meet you. Is that vague? Is that general? It sounds like it. You see a guy carrying water jug, just don't say anything to him, just follow him, and he'll take you to the master of the house. Well, it's not unclear at all when we take into account that men didn't carry water jugs. That's a very important fact. It was actually a woman or a girl who would be carrying the water jugs. Remember, everyone is coming into town to celebrate this Passover meal. So the city was booming. It's overcrowded with Jews who have come to celebrate. Now, if you saw a bunch of people dressed up as witches and wizards, you wouldn't be surprised to see them if you were at, say, Harry Potter World, Universal Studio. You come to expect that. But if you're walking downtown Fayetteville and you see a single witch or wizard or someone dressed as one, you you would be rather surprised, wouldn't you? That stands out. Assuming, of course, there's no gathering of dressed-up witches or wizards in Fayetteville. I don't know if there is any planned, but certainly it would stand out. The point here is that Jesus 
is not sending these two disciples out on a wild goose chase. This is not a where's Waldo situation. He's there somewhere, but he's blending in with, with everyone else who looks pretty much like him. We saw in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is intentional. Uh, he, he's, he's so, he so pursued clarity. He wanted them to know what was not the sign and what was the sign. Our teacher is a clear teacher. So he clearly tells Peter and John where they are to go, what they are to look for. But to avoid... Being overheard, Peter and John are simply to follow this water man, guy who's carrying a jar of water. Who is he? We don't know. He must have been a follower of Christ. To, for, for Jesus to have connected uh, this man with Peter and John. Remember, Jesus has people outside of the twelve. This must have been one of those many who trusted in, in him, who, who saw what Jesus has done. Like, the, like this unknown man, this master of the house must have followed Jesus as well. One intriguing theory is that this guy was the father of John Mark, who is the author of the Gospel of Mark. As intriguing as that is, we just don't know. God knows who this master of the house is. But again, even in a city whose leadership is dead set on snuffing out the Savior, there is still a contingent of disciples whose lives have been changed forever by the Messiah. In three years, Jesus has, has done wonderful things. So many miracles, too many to record. He has amazed the people with his teaching, which is unlike the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. So Jesus has quite a number of connections. He's drawn quite a good crowd. At the same time, he's drawn the crowd that wants to kill him. But he has people outside of the 12 whom he is using now to help the 12 to get where everyone needs to be for this most important meal. As Jesus is perfectly in control of the planning process, he directs his disciples to a mediator. So what we must see is this, that following Jesus' words meant following this man. These two disciples could not get to the owner's house without this man. They would be flying blind. There was no specific location on the corner of this street and that street. You will find the house. This man, you could say, was their GPS. They, they needed him. They could not get to the house without this man who was carrying the water jug. They needed his mediation. And likewise, they could not get to the man without following Christ's words to a T. Now, Christ's words are very clear. He says, you'll find a man with water jug. You're not just looking for any old man. You're not looking for a woman who has a water jug. You're looking for a man with a water jug. And then you'll lock eyes, and he'll motion to you to go to this house. And there you'll see the place where we will eat. So this man, whoever he is, was quite important. And even points us to the fact 
that we need mediation. We need a mediator. Jesus reminds his disciples through this brief account of their dependence on him. If they were to get to this man, they needed his words. They needed Jesus' words. If they were to get to the master of the house, they needed this man. They needed Christ through and through. Follow him really becomes an expression of follow me. So even in this preparatory passage, we see hints of Christ as their mediator and as our mediator. Now, biblical history has had its mediators aplenty, men who have been chosen by God to go between God and Israel. This could be a national mediator like Moses, a priestly mediator like Aaron, a sacrificial mediator like the Lamb, a prophetic mediator like Samuel, or a kingly mediator like David. There were many mediators, and they all, in one sense or another, like this unknown man leading Peter and John to the master's house, they all point to Jesus as the mediator, as the only mediator, the only go-between between God and man. This is exactly what Jesus says in John's account that takes place around the same time as we have Mark's account. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There really is only one mediator, one ultimate mediator, one ultimate go-between. It is Jesus Christ. So the good teacher plans himself as the only mediator to the Father. All other mediators will fail. Doesn't matter if, if you are Muhammad, you will, you will fail the people. You will fail if you are Joseph Smith. You will fail if you are depending on Charles Taze Russell. You will fail. And if you think that you do not need a mediator, then you are kidding yourself, fooling yourself. You are self-deceived even. For as, as God says in Jeremiah, who will dare of himself to approach me? We ought not dare. Approach the Lord, who is holy, 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 when we are unholy. And again, all these these men in the Bible function as a kind of mediator. And we have helps today. We have people, men and women, who help us along the way to life. We depend entirely and exclusively on the words of Jesus. And as we do, we are led to life, but the Lord will will use people to grow. This is why Paul can say, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. All of these men and women are, are helps to the extent that they are pointing you to Christ, as they are pointing you to the ultimate Mediator, And if you do not have someone like this, some man or a woman, maybe a father figure, hopefully your father, a mother figure, if not your mother, hopefully you have someone, a good friend, who will point you to Christ. As, these, as this particular unknown man was used by Christ for Christ's purposes. As the good teacher planned mediation, so he also prepared habitation. We see in verse 15, and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. 
So earlier in Mark, you might remember, Jesus used this language of preparation to ready his triumphant, triumphant entry. In Mark 11, verses 1 and 2, he said to two disciples, Go into the village, find a colt, and borrow it. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, well, the, the teacher has need of it. Very similar instructions here in Mark 14. As he prepared for his triumph in Jerusalem, so now he prepares a room hours before his death. Though he sent his disciples to locate the room, remember, they were not the ones who had it prepared. Their job was not to get the room, but to go to the man who would take them to the room. They were to prepare the Passover meal in that room for Jesus and the other disciples. And with the remaining hours ahead of them, their to-do list wasn't unmanageable. They had some things to do, purchases of unleavened bread and bitter herbs, wine, the lamb, It had to be made ready, sauce. They had some work cut out for them to do. But the significant work had already been done. Finding a place in the first place, and one large enough as well, must have been hard to procure. must have been pretty difficult for Christ to secure this room, knowing that everyone wants a room in Jerusalem to eat the Passover meal. But the teacher, showing himself always in control, was able to prepare them room. And this word furnished, in 15, verse 15, means spreading. And so Jesus literally had quite the spread with this preparation, with this room. The carpets were there. The couches on which to recline were already. The room was large. It was spacious. It was, there was ample area for everyone to move about and to recline and just to enjoy the time with their good teacher, with their Savior. And so again, in this preparatory passage, we see hints of Christ as their room and as our room. Now, rooms are highly coveted by people of all ages and sizes. They want their own room. Think of maybe you're a child and you're nearing teenage years, or maybe you have reached teenage years and your eyes are set on getting your own room. Maybe you are counting down the days for your oldest sibling to get out of the house so that you can now inhabit that room and leave the one with whom you are residing to her own room. Get your own. And then you get to go to town. You get to put all of that you want in there. If you're a wife, a mother, you might take pride in, in all the rooms, but maybe one in particular where the meals are, are made. Maybe the kitchen would be the, the room for, for you. I was recently asked where, I could, where a person could find a pitcher in the kitchen, and I said, I do not know. But my wife does, and she's got everything organized. Now, every room has been beautified by her, but she spends a lot of time in the kitchen, blessing us with wonderful meals. That's, she gets it decorated as ever, however she wants. This talk in this generation, it might be unique to this generation, about men having their own man caves. You guys know those? Maybe it could be a basement area, a, an office to the side. So this is where we, this is where everything happens. This is where the manly stuff happens. It could be a garage with a portable AC unit, you know, whatever. Get Put all that stuff that the wife says, that's not going in here. All that, all those, that gaudy uh, neon sign and weird posters you couldn't part with. And 
all that stuff. Others might say, man cave. My whole house is a man cave. I'm the head of the house, after all, right? The point is, though, people love to have their own rooms. And whoever you are, prepare it however you want. Furnish it as you will. Paint the walls, whatever color you want. Throw a ping-pong table there. Throw a fridge in there. Have a couch, a nice recliner. The whole nine yards. And then chill in it all by yourself if you want. Or invite the gals over. Invite the, ga- the guys over and just enjoy it. It's your room. Prepare it however you want. Use it however you want. This guest room belongs to the Lord as he has secured it for the time needed. It is his room. What he says goes in there, goes in there. No, there's no ping pong table. There are tables on which to recline and to eat quite the meal. If the disciples really knew what they were going to partake of in the coming verses, they knew the meaning of the meal in their hearts, and they would see the walls painted with the blood of the Lamb. True refreshment wouldn't come from a fridge, but from the sun's riven side, pouring forth the waters of the river of life. This large room ever so slightly points to the full furnishing that the sun as room provides. He who had no room in the inn at his birth now prepares a room for his baby Christians, for his little disciples. In this way, he reminds us again of true lasting lodging of himself as our eternal dwelling place. I was reminded recently of the desire to be home. Maybe a scared child says, I just want to go home. I no longer want to be here. Wherever here is. Maybe a person is deployed homesick. I just want to go home. That's, that's where my nice pillow and bed are. That's where the nice recliner is. That's where the food that I'm comfortable eating is. That's where my pet is. That's where my husband is. That's where my wife is. That's where my kids are. I just want to go home. I just want to be in my own house, my own room. Enjoy that space. Jesus is saying, he is that space. He is that room. He is that eternal dwelling place. You want to go to the Father, you go through the Son. In fact, Jesus says that in his Father's house are many rooms. Even as the Son prepares his death, there is no safer room than his presence. Even though foes surround, or will soon surround the disciples. When I was young, I thought that when I went to heaven, I would get my own mansion. Some of you thought that as well? Boy, was I mistaken. A mansion is a small shed compared to my and our heavenly home. As the sun prepares our heavenly home, we have the whole of heaven and earth awaiting us because we have Christ who will bring us home, home to his renewed creation one day when heaven comes down, joins, reunifies with the earth. What a joyous day that'll be. The whole of creation will be ours. 
See in verse 16, and the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So as a good teacher prepared a room, he provided the room's centerpiece. What lay before everyone in that large upper room was soon to be the lamb. And we know the disciples must have been involved in the process of preparation, as I just mentioned a little bit ago. They must have procured a lamb that is slaughtered at the temple. As they brought into the room, that lamb no longer bleating but lifeless, little did they know that the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world would soon be bleeding for them. Even though they brought the lamb for the meal, they could not provide the Passover lamb that they needed once for all time. They were kind of like chickens. I'm not saying they were chickens as in afraid, though they are. More on that in the coming weeks. I've recently learned that we had to buy grit for our chickens, something to add to their regular intake. You know, chickens don't have teeth. I didn't know that. I, I never really inspected a chicken's mouth before, but realized they don't have teeth. And once the chickens move beyond the feed that is so finely ground, they need something to break down the larger food as they eat as adult chickens. And that's where this grit comes into play. They eat a little grit, and when they eat their food, their adult chicken food, the food meets with the grit, and the grit, like some pebbles rubbing up against the food, breaks down the food into smaller digestible bites. This is how God created chickens, and many of them just eat the grit from nature's dirt. Some of them need a little assistance depending on their location. Fascinatingly, God has designed chickens teethless to depend on something outside them to break up their food. Similarly, the disciples depend upon something outside themselves to break up their sin. The disciples were like all those Old Testament saints, all those worshipers of past generations. Year after year, they would sacrifice a lamb as their substitute. They would eat it for their redemption. The problem, of course, was that they would repeat this every single year at the national level. And if they had the tabernacle before them or later the temple, what they would do is every single day, there would be a burnt offering that's, that's offered morning and evening that gives them access to worship in the tabernacle or to worship in the temple. So daily and, and, and weekly and annually, they are reminded over and over and over that they need someone, that they cannot approach the throne of God by themselves. They need that mediator. They need a substitute. They need some precious blood because that blood of that lamb or that goat, of that bull, will not do. It's only to point them to the final lamb. So the disciples will sacrifice, on this night, they will sacrifice the last lamb of their lives because the final lamb has come to die. Mary had prepared Jesus for burial, and now he, the lamb of God, prepares himself for death. So in this preparatory passage, we see hints of Christ as their and our paschal lamb. As John the Baptist announced at the start of his ministry, Jesus provides at this meal. He provides himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And remarkably, Jesus eats this Passover meal in Jerusalem, surrounded by dangers. 
the most dangerous spot for this lamb was to be right there in the city of Jerusalem, where Judas is seeking an opportunity to betray him, where the religious leaders are seeking a way to capture him and to kill him. But as this courageous lamb, Jesus feasts in the midst of his foes. He celebrates despite the trial that awaits him, celebrates even the deliverance from his enemies as they sharpen their knives. You can celebrate a time like this, Jesus? Absolutely. For this hour I have come, he would say. What a bold Savior we worship, who braved enemies and death to provide us with full atonement. Not something that had to be repeated year after year. Full atonement. The good shepherd prepares for himself a feast in the presence of his enemies. The good shepherd prepares for us a feast in the presence of his and our enemies. As the Christ feasted in the face of foes, then we too can can feast, can celebrate, come what may. Christ plans it all. Christ prepares it all. Christ provides it all. Salvation is of the Lord. Let's feast. Amen. As the words of the heavens go through all the earth, make the words of the man of heaven go through every part of our hearts, that we might know, love, and worship you with greater faithfulness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.